Luke 7, verse number 18. The Bible says that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. I'll tell you what those things are in a moment. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I preached this text for the first time about a year and a half after I got saved. What's interesting is that first year and a half that I got saved, I never doubted God, never. I was living off the momentum of my radical salvation and deliverance from all the filth that owned me for so long. And I, I promise you, there was not a moment when I doubted God at all in the first probably 18 to 24 months of my salvation. Everything was new, everything was powerful, everything was bright, everything made spiritual sense. God was, now that I look back on it, God was being merciful unto me as an infant in Christ and didn't allow anything to really test my faith. He was just allowing me to root down in my faith. And so the first time I ever preached this message about John's moment of doubt, it was all theoretical because I had never been through doubt myself. Now, I'm going to confess something to you. And I hope it doesn't allow you to judge me. I hope it just helps you to have confidence that I always try to tell you the truth. I went through a prolonged season of deep faith struggle. And it lasted not a month and not a year and not five years, but about six and a half years where regularly as I would go before the Lord, I would present all the things I knew about him all of my theology was intact, but I doubted my relationship with him. Not my salvation, but I doubted my father-son relationship with God. He was allowing things to happen that I felt like he should never allow to have happen to me. 
He, he, he didn't prevent people who were coming after me with intensity, and all I'm trying to do is honor him and serve him and walk in truth and light. And I remember, though, I was, I was a, a disciplined enough soldier to never tell God that he was making a mistake. I never said that with my mouth, but he read my heart, and that's what he saw. I just doubted his goodness towards me. Now, I'm going to assume there's at least a handful of people in the room that have said, Jeff, I've been through seasons like that. There may be some in the room that are saying, I'm in a season like that. And you know what makes those seasons so much more difficult? Is when you're in that season of doubting, on top of the doubt that you're trying to wrestle through, there's now a layer of shame and guilt because you know religiously you're not supposed to doubt God. And so it's this boom, boom, kind of one-two punch that you're struggling inwardly about God's goodness, and then you're struggling with your own self and, and that little voice saying, how dare you doubt God? And so it was a really, really tough time for me. It doesn't mean that I didn't have moments of joy and moments of breakthrough and, and fruit coming from the ministry. It just meant this, that I was being crucified in my flesh. My flesh was being crucified. And we have learned that crucifixion is a slow, agonizing death. When a person is physically crucified, they don't punch in the nails and in five minutes the person's gone. The actual uh, process of crucifixion was meant to prolong the person's agony on the cross. And the Bible says that's what happens to us when we're dying to ourselves. It doesn't disappear all of a sudden. Some things within us take a long process and they have to be, in essence, strangled out of us by circumstances. Now, some people hear that and say, well, why in the world would I ever want to come to Jesus? Because the end result of being crucified is resurrection. And so when you cooperate with the process of crucifixion, you get to experience the breakthrough of resurrection. And I'm going to tell you, without sounding overly spiritual, I want to tell you, if God came to me tonight and said, Jeff, we'll take you back in time and I'll let you live your life and never go through any of those things, I would say, Lord, forbid it. Do not allow me to miss those things in my life because it was through that process of going through the doubts, the struggles, and God shepherding in faithfulness that I realized he is as glorious as he says he is. He is as good to me as he says he is. Life isn't always good, but God is always good. And I could not have learned that if he had not allowed me to go through my own season. And so let's walk through John's season with him. Um, let's start with this, this beginning of this passage, verses 18 and 19 and 20. And let me talk to you about your faith's collision with your circumstances, because that's exactly what happened to John here. First of all, let's remember what John said. He decreed it. John in his decrease is seen in verse number 18. What do I mean? The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, we've skipped a big gap of time, not a big gap of time, but a lot happened between where we ended last time and this message. John is now in a dungeon. John had been proclaiming and preaching. You'll remember that he declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then John's crowd started thinning out. He was doing what he was called to do. He was pointing all people to Jesus. And as he did that, those who were coming to John's baptism meetings were growing fewer and fewer. That's why I think it's in Luke chapter 3 where uh, John the Baptist said this. His disciples were saying, hey, the, the new guy, Jesus, 
All the people are going after him. And John made this amazing statement to his disciples. He said this. He said, a man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. And so John knew that Jesus was receiving what the Father had decreed, and John was still receiving what the Father intended, but it was getting smaller and smaller. And so John made that amazing statement that he, he said this, I must decrease, he must increase. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us have said, yes, that's a spiritual principle. That's a key to the kingdom. I must decrease. You, Lord, must increase. It's awesome when it flows off the lips, but when you have to start living in the reality of that, it doesn't always feel great. And John's season of decrease involved, I believe, way more than he ever anticipated. Why? Because now he's in jail. He's in a dungeon. What did he do? John, as a preacher of righteousness had gotten in the presence of King Herod and called King Herod out for having a, an adulterous affair with his brother's wife. His brother was once married to a woman, Herodias, who Herod and she had a relationship and she left her husband and Herod married her and John the preacher of righteousness calls them out in front of everybody over it, infuriating uh, Herod's wife and infuriating Herod and so what did Herod do he threw him in a dungeon and that was it that's where John was and the Bible says that his disciples came and reported to him while he's in jail that Jesus if you'll read earlier in the chapter Jesus is doing astounding ministry Jesus is forgiving people Jesus is turning the other cheek Jesus is healing Jesus is uh, giving sight to the blind and and the ability to hear to the deaf he's preaching he's teaching now, I'm going I'm to suggest to you that John didn't really anticipate that that was going to be the majority of Jesus' ministry because the last statement John made about Jesus publicly that's recorded in Scripture is this, that, that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he's bringing unquenchable fire. So John anticipated the Messiah to come to Israel, burn up Rome, deal with sin heartily as a king, put down all things that oppose the glory of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and set up and establish the, 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 the rule over Israel. John pictured the Messiah coming like most Old Testament people did, coming in fire and power and glory, and Jesus is over there taking kids up in his lap and, and feeding the hungry. And, and forgiving sinners and, and, and being kind and gentle and, and doing all of these amazing, compassionate works. And there's no fire. There's no putting down Rome. Herod's still in his palace while John's in the, in the dungeon in that palace. All the bad guys seem to be winning. John's a good guy. He's sitting in prison. And Jesus, best that we can tell, never even went to go visit him. And his disciples are coming and telling him about all these great things that are happening through Jesus, and John is experiencing the season of decrease. Friends, it's not theoretical. You that have set your heart to glorify God with your life, I'm going to make you a big boy and a big girl promise. You're going to experience decrease. There, there are aspects of the gospel that are ignored by so many that preach and teach the gospel today. They don't tell you, come and die. They don't tell you to carry your cross daily. They don't tell you that if you want him to increase through your life, you're going to have to decrease in your life. That there literally must be less of you and more of him. And that's rarely addressed anymore. John spoke it 
Now he's having to live it. How many of you have found out it's a lot easier to say your faith than to live your faith, right? So let's go a little bit further into verse 19. His decrease resulted clearly in his doubt. Verse 19. So John, he's in prison. He calls two of his disciples to him. And he sends them to the Lord Jesus. And here's the message they're supposed to relay. Are you the one who is to come, or should we be looking for another? Now, why would he ask that? Because just a short time earlier, with an illuminating, Holy Spirit illuminating word of knowledge, he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is he. John's message went from this is he, exclamation point, to is this he, question mark. And, and what had changed? All that had changed was the circumstances, the decrease. you got to think about it. Let's have some compassion on John. John's been living in the freedom of the Judean wilderness. He has been roaming about with no confines. All of that freedom, all of that bright sky, all of that, that air, that breeze coming on him, it's all gone. Now he's stuck in a dungy, filthy cell in the bottom of the uh, palace. He is now in a dungeon. And he can't breathe that air, and he can't see that sun, and he's confined, and there's no crowds. There's no audience for the message that still pulses in his veins. And a week goes by, and he's still in the jail. And maybe a month goes by, and he's still in the jail. And the Messiah, the one he ran before, the one he heralded, the one he proclaimed, the one he pointed everybody to, the one he decreased for, hasn't even come to see him. And so John, just like probably many of us would, calls two of his loyal disciples that are still with him. He says, will you go to him and ask him, did we miss it? Now, this is so extreme that we may think it has nothing to do with us. But I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourself, be honest with the Lord. And it's not necessarily true for everybody, but most of us that have walked consistently with the Lord for years, decades, most of us have had moments where God didn't feel like we thought he was supposed to be. In other words, we're feeling differently about you because you're not operating the way we thought you would operate. And it can be a very unsettling thing when all of a sudden we re realize, oh, we actually don't have the Almighty figured out. And friends, we, we listen. We never really have to come to terms with that until God starts operating in ways that are differently than what we thought he should do. And so to John, maybe Jesus looked like he was being discompassionate. I mean, he's out there doing all this other stuff for people. Hey, you're opening the eyes of the blind. You're, you're raising the dead, Jesus will say here in a minute. And so those testimonies are coming. He's like, can you not come and proclaim liberty to me? I'm a captive. The Messiah is supposed to liberate the captives, and I'm your guy. And Jesus isn't, isn't coming. You know, let me tell you a couple of things that serve as a catalyst for doubts, that provoke our flesh, that can cause us if we're not careful to stumble on prolonged challenges when the problem doesn't go away, when the pain doesn't go away, when the breakthrough doesn't come, when the prayer isn't answered yet, when you, when you popped that prayer request into the microwave process of God doing what you want him to do, you push the button of faith and your, your result didn't ding, come out on time and the, and the challenge got longer and longer, it serves as a fertile field if we're not careful for our doubts to arise 
Sometimes it's just our incomplete understanding with God. Let me, let me just be bold here. If you don't read your Bible, you're going to really struggle with God because you don't know how he operates. And if you're not in the word, then what is defining God to you? I mean, listen, if, if we're defining God to ourselves, we're going to mess up all over the place. But if we're students of the word, what we're going to find out is that he told us like right off the bat, hey, my ways are actually higher than your ways. And my thoughts, they're not like your thoughts. As a matter of fact, it, it look up to heaven. Can you see heaven? No, Lord, I can't see heaven. He goes, right, the distance between where you are and where I am, that's the same distance between how you think and how I think. And, and, and yet we operate under the presumption that we, 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 we got nine things about God and he's got to obey them. And, and when he doesn't, sometimes we, we stumble because we're, we're biblically ignorant. And we don't realize that, no, he reveals himself in, in, in amazing, immeasurable complexity sometimes. We don't have to make it complicated. But I'm going to tell you, when we come to the place where we thought we had God figured out, we are setting ourselves up for trouble. So there's popular misconceptions about God because you got your favorite podcasting preacher and you just listen to what he says. And of course, if we always listen to only one person talk about God, God becomes kind of lopsided because they're always the way that preacher or teacher defines him to be. So these dogmatic declarations from John the Baptist are now questions. It's a humbling thing. Have you been through that season yet? When uh, we, we, we've got a lot of young zealots around here. You know, Wednesday night, we're kind of like, we're, we're getting to be the older crowd around here, you know. Have you noticed that? The young people are all over at Forerunner and everything, and it's kind of kind of cool. We get to be grown-ups and all that. I, I, I love it when young people come, but they're all over at Forerunner, age, what, 16 to 23, however old over there. And so, you know, we've walked a little bit with, with, with the Lord, but have you been through that season where you look back at some of the stuff you thought and said right after you got saved, and you kind of cringe? You're like, ooh, I wish I hadn't said that because because we thought we had it figured out and so we're like we're robust we're yeah this is I remember a guy telling me it was he was my best friend at the time right after I got saved he got saved right after I did we moved into an apartment and we were fundamentalists man we were we were like we were the best fundamentalists because we were really unhappy and to be a good fundamentalist you have got to be unhappy and so I remember him, and I was starting to loosen up a little bit, and he, he just wasn't going to get loose. And I was like, dude, come on, man, let's go out and have some fun. And he, like, with fire in his eyes, he goes, fun? I don't have time for fun! <laughs> I remember thinking, you know what, man, that's kind of the motto of your life right now. But, but, but those kind of things, you know, it's like as if smiling would displease the Father and stuff. You know, there's just stuff that we, we grow out of. That's why the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter number five, be not rash with your mouth, neither let your heart be hasty to utter anything before the Lord, for God is in heaven, you are upon earth, therefore let your words be few. I think it's Ecclesiastes 5.11, I know it's Ecclesiastes 5, but I remember reading that, it's like, oh, God says, yeah, don't say a whole lot, don't let your heart be hasty to utter things in the house in the presence of God, because uh, he's in heaven, you're upon earth, that means you just don't. You don't have it all figured out. And John didn't either. And so he's doubting. But let me tell you what I love about this. John didn't sit alone in the prison cell with his doubts and let them fester. He did something. Don't miss that. Verse 19, he calls. He can't get out himself. And you know how tempting it would be to just curl up in a dark corner of the, of the prison cell and just give up? And, you know, bottle feed your own doubts until they become monsters and take over. No, John said, look, I, I, I really need to know. So he calls his disciples. He says, I can't get out of this place, but go to Jesus. I need some answers. And that's one of the greatest things we can do in our season of doubt is not isolate, 
not shut off the counsel, not, re, not block ourselves from receiving help from other people. John's getting humbled, and so what does he do? He talks to a couple of people he can trust. And so as he's telling his disciples this, guess what they're figuring out? Oh, our, we're disciples of John, and our leader is really struggling. So John wasn't too proud to, to he didn't have, try to prevent his followers from knowing that he was struggling. He's just like, man, I need answers. I'm desperate. You guys go find Jesus. So look in verse 20. Look at his determination. When the men had come to him, they came to Jesus, they repeated what he had said. John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's his determination. John is just saying, I'm not going to sit in this prison cell alone with my doubts until I die. I need some answers. So he enlists the help of his friends and he gets determined to do something about it. Let me just speak in case anybody is in their own season of doubt right now. You need to talk to somebody other than yourself about whatever is going on in your heart. When, when you listen to yourself all the time, you're not going to get the answer. Sometimes you've got to preach to yourself. There's a difference between listening to yourself. And what I mean by that is when you get in a bad place, when you're, you're in your own little dungeon of circumstance, when you can't break free and you, you're not hearing the Lord and you're struggling with who he is, the last thing you need to do is let that little sad voice inside of you, the confused voice, your, your conscience, your intellect, whatever you want to call it, let that voice start speaking to you in its defeated state. You don't need to listen to yourself when you're defeated. You need to get other people to speak into your life. You need to be open and, and break out of it. That's one of the things you've got to do. You have to fight sometimes for your faith. Sometimes Jesus doesn't just swing by the prison cell. Sometimes he wants you to actually go through the humbling process of looking at somebody with skin on and say, hey, I'm really struggling. I, I don't have answers. I don't think I'm thinking clearly, but I'm afraid to admit it, but I, I'm, I'm just defeating myself. And so he, he determines to enlist some help. So go down. let's go down into verses 21 through 23. So all of that is just basically kind of describing John's faith as it collides with his circumstances. And in the moment, his circumstances are swallowing up his faith. It, it, there's no two ways about it. I read some commentators that, that literally did hermeneutical gymnastics bending over backwards to try to prove John wasn't doubting and I'm like come on man just let the Bible say what it says he is struggling he's not divine he's human he's susceptible in all points I mean he's just made of the same stuff that you and I are but look at Jesus this is amazing to me this is not the Jesus I believed in even after I got saved, it took me a while to really believe in this Jesus, this aspect of Jesus from the Bible. Look at his, his, as the shepherd. Jesus comes in as the shepherd, bringing lavish reassurance. First of all, notice what Jesus does. Remember, they posed a question to him. They said, are you the one or should we look to another? So look at what Jesus does. First of all, he gave mercy to the burdened. The Bible says in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues. So I want you to picture the scene with me. The disciples of John the Baptist have come to Jesus in a public ministry setting. And so Jesus is in a public setting outside somewhere, and he's ministering to people. And these two disciples of John the Baptist come up with a public question. And the answer to Jesus is, is not verbal. It's visual. He doesn't say a word. 
he just begins ministering. It, it, it's almost as if, I, I, I don't want to add to the word of God here, but I can picture Jesus saying, brothers, can, can y'all just follow me for a little bit? I'm, I'm ministering. I, I have heard what you said, but there's a lot of need here. Would you just walk with me? And he begins to heal people instantly on the spot, miraculously, supernaturally, of the diseases that were owning their body. He is giving mercy to the burdened, but it, it goes even more intensely. He gave deliverance to the bound. The Bible says that he healed many people of evil spirits. Now, don't just gloss over that. That means that there were people there that day that were not only sick and afflicted with disease and illnesses and ailments, but there were people that were, whose bodies were inhabited by demons. They were filled with the agents of darkness, active, rational, spiritual beings inhabiting the bodies of people. And when Jesus came into their presence in his sovereign omniscience, he looks at them and commands the demons to leave the people. Now, if you're familiar with your New Testament, oftentimes in the Bible when demons were um, uh, evicted from somebody's life, it would be very dramatic. Screaming, flailing, falling about, all of that stuff. And so, remember, Jesus is moving back, back in the crowd. There's a question in the air. Are you the one or should we look to another he's not giving a verbal answer he's giving a visual answer and so he gives vision to the blind too the bible says right here that on many who were blind he bestowed sight now walk with me here um jesus doesn't initially give a verbal answer to the to the followers of john so what does he do he's allowing them to witness his power on display power over the natural order the physical order and the demonic realm and it's happening over and over and over again. He wanted to impact John's disciples with, with something that they would never forget. And so here's the thing. If Jesus had given them a verbal answer, and they had taken that verbal answer of, yes, I am the Messiah, go back and tell John that I said I was the Messiah. So if they had done that, John, they go back to John, John's in the dungeon, he gets that momentary reassurance the, the disciples say, John, we've got to go. They leave John in the cell, and probably within an hour, doubt starts creeping back into his mind. You see, the verbal answer often satisfies the intellect, but it cannot, it cannot realign the heart. John wasn't having an intellectual issue here. John was having a heart issue. And so what J Jesus did is Jesus put before the eyes of these two men that would be witnesses unto John and an amazing repeated display of heaven's power. And you've got to remember, this stuff wasn't happening prior to Jesus. It's been 400 years before open miracles and these kind of things had been done. And so when they're going back and they're saying, we saw it with our own eyes and their testimony because they were visually impacted and they're not coming back with a theological dissertation on the Messiah, we're going to see in a minute, Jesus does connect this to Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. But they're going to go back to John, and Jesus knows when somebody has experienced his power, has seen his power, there's something on their witness that is different. It is elevated than somebody just giving a theological witness. Now, I know that's not popular, but I'm going to tell you something. I spent years, the first probably five or six years of my preaching ministry, Hitting theology to the extent where I know more than once I said, we don't need to think about experience. What we need is theology and truth. And listen, we need theology and truth, but I want to tell you something. There are a lot 
of people out there with theology and truth that is orthodox and pinpoint and good theology, but there's no power on their lives. And, and there, it's not that they can't be witnesses, they can, but there is something that backs that witness with oil on it. When you, you're not telling some, somebody something you heard or you read, you're telling somebody about an experience that you have with the living God. And I'm going to tell you, that makes all the difference in the world. When Daniel came up here tonight, I, I wasn't even thinking about this then, but he, he can preach. He can do that. But his life is a sermon. So in five minutes, he just tells you what the Lord does with his life. Now, I got a, I got a little bit of an advantage on you guys because I saw it happen. I was there on day one. I was there in the courtroom. I was there right after he got delivered. I got to watch God do all of this. And then to hear the back end of it tonight, that God gave a, a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband and a little boy. He's going to get raised up in a Christian home that the devil tried to destroy. Give me that over a homiletical outline any day. Amen. Gives vision to the blind, and Jesus does all of this stuff. Then, just so we make sure that we don't think Jesus is against truth and against theology and against speaking, look at verse number 22. Because now he adds to what he does and he provides context to it verbally, what Jesus says. He says, now, gentlemen, go tell John what you have seen and heard. And Jesus elucidates it here. The blind have received their sight, the lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, the deaf can hear, watch this, the dead are raised up. We didn't read that in verse 21. Luke just kind of skipped that. The dead were raised that day, and the poor have good news preached to them. Um, because these individuals were, were Hebrews. They would have been very familiar with the most famous Hebrew prophet, which would have been Isaiah. And they would have known that that was speaking from Isaiah 29, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61. All messianic prophecies about what the Messiah would do when he arrived. And Jesus is telling them, go tell John what you have seen, what you have witnessed, and John will be able to connect what you tell him with the rock-solid messianic prophecies of his Bible. See, it's not either or, friends. That's what I, we are a word and spirit assembly here. In, in the Bible Belt, it's been a while since I've said this, in a Bible Belt, most churches force you to choose between the scriptures and the spirit. So heavy-duty Holy Spirit churches, they don't really want to fool around with a whole lot of doctrine. Hey, let's just get, get the Bible out of the way. Let's just experience the Lord. And then most of your theological churches are afraid of the Holy Spirit because he can't be controlled. He can't be predicted. He can't be boxed in. And so what do they do? They relegate him to a place of basically he's a silent observer of what else is going on. And, and what we've done here is we've said, no, we, we don't see in the New Testament anywhere where we're forced to choose between the Scriptures and the Spirit, where a Word and Spirit church, and, and just a, a little micro-capsule of that is right here. Jesus says, watch what I'm going to do. Boom! He hits with power, undeniable power, power that couldn't be predicted, power that couldn't be controlled, power that couldn't be resisted, power that could not be boxed in, but then he brings undergirding it the foundation of truth. He says, let me put some Bible on that. So most of us in the room tilt one way or the other, Find the radical middle in that. We need both. 
the Word and the Spirit. Because I gave myself so long to the Word, I've spent the last probably three years publicly going hard after the Holy Spirit because I pastored people that were Word, 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 Word. And let me just tell you something. When the Word pastor starts going after the Spirit, the Word people get nervous. They're like, he has, he has lost his marbles. He's gone nuts. No, I haven't gone nuts. I've just recognized that the New Testament paradigm is apostolic doctrine, the Bible, and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. And hallelujah, you're in a place and a culture and an atmosphere and a community here across this mission base where you don't have to pick between the two. Pursue both. Apologize for neither. Somebody gets all over you about always quoting scripture. Don't apologize for that. Somebody, somebody looks at you and you're like, man, you're a little wonky with the Holy Spirit. You're kind of weird. Don't apologize for it. Just quote him John chapter 3 and say, yeah, Jesus said the one who is moved by the Spirit is like the wind. You can't predict that person. I better, better continue here. <laughs> what he does and what he says, and then look at verse 23. This is, this is huge. Here's the instruction for the doubting soul. This is what Jesus desires. Jesus says, oh, by the way, when you go back to John, Guys, tell John that the one who's not offended in me is blessed. Do you know what that was? It was a very gentle rebuke. A very gentle rebuke. Somebody called it a gentle rebuke wrapped in a beatitude. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That's where I wonder, uh, pardon me, I wonder where those scholars can come off saying that John wasn't struggling with doubt. Jesus said he was. Jesus said that John was about to stumble. The word offended there is not like we think of offended. It's, it's the one who is struggling to the point of stumbling and losing what he has. And so John, Jesus tells these guys, go back to John and tell him not to be offended in me. And that's where the blessing is. What is Jesus saying? John, finish to the end. Retain your confidence in me. Don't doubt in the darkness which you knew was certain in the light. Continue to trust in me. I would say this. I think Jesus obviously had a high regard for John's level of spiritual maturity because he offers a rebuke. You know, when somebody's doing badly and they're in their worst season, we're like, we just turn on the compassion fountain so much. We just want to flood them with compassion and mercy. Do you know sometimes the people in our lives, whether it's us or somebody else, when they're in their struggle season, they're doubting God, sometimes they just need occasionally a little piercing of the truth. Now, you've got to be really wise and discerning about how you've delivered that, but Jesus tells John, hey, John, you want, you want to be blessed. Don't be offended in me. Don't struggle with, with how I'm operating right now. Don't, don't doubt me when you're in your season of confinement. I mean, he had lost his ministry, he had lost his freedom, and he was going to lose his life. And, and Jesus didn't prevent it. Now, let's ask ourselves why. Because, listen, we are preconditioned to think that a good God is obligated to keep all bad stuff away from his faithful kids. That's, that's just the way we're preconditioned. It's not biblical. I mean, everybody you admire in the Bible went through hell at times. Everybody you admire. There's nobody that we admire in Scripture that always had it easy. I mean, if you think about it, Moses wanted to quit and die. Elijah 
quit and wanted to die. Um, who's another one? Well, you, you've got um, Jeremiah. Jeremiah got in the presence of the Lord and he goes, I'm not preaching for you anymore. I'm done with this. And he convinced himself and God's like, okay, all right. Jeremiah walks away and he comes back and goes, yeah, it's like fire in my bones. I've got to preach for you. I just can't quit. But he wanted to. And then you've got the Apostle Paul who wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, we despaired even of living. The Apostle Paul got to a place where it got so bad, he's like, just take us home, Lord. And yet we, we walk around and we, we, don't, we don't leave any margin for this kind of thing in, in our lives or the lives of others when, when it's very clear that there's going to be struggle attached to it. And so this issue of offense is a very real danger. You know, you can go to church offended with God. You can give offended with God. You can serve and be offended with God. You can be a decent husband and a decent wife and a decent parent and decent grandparent and live offended with God. Do you know that in our churches, there are scores of people that have been offended with God for years? But because they operate under religious guilt, they pretend they're not offended. They don't put themselves out there anymore. They pull back from what God has called and empowered them to do. They don't want to get hurt again. So what they do is they, they just build a little wall around them and they just operate within that little wall. But nobody gets on the inside of that wall and they won't go on the outside of that wall. And a lot of the times it's because they're disappointed with the Lord. And instead of doing what a father would want his child to do, when, when, when we're, listen, when we are struggling with who God is and what he is doing and why he's not operating the way we thought, the worst thing we can do is to go dormant and silent with that. The best thing we can do is to come into the presence of the one who knows all about it anyway. You know how silly it is for us to pretend like we're not offended with him? He's omniscient. He's like, what are you doing down there? You're singing, you're raising your hands, you're going through the motions. Don't you know I know you're upset with me? Why don't you let me in? And sometimes he doesn't wait on invitations. Sometimes he just says, I'm tired of you living like this. I'm just going to bring you to your breaking point. We're going to deal with this thing. And so, friends, let me just tell you, when he moves strongly on that, it's in love. When he, when he doesn't force you to acknowledge where you are with him, you know what he's doing? He's allowing that crucifixion process to happen with you. He's going to allow you to go through the slow death until you're ready to admit, Lord, this thing that happened or this thing that didn't happen or this ambush in life that you're sovereign, you could have made it all go away, and you didn't. I'm struggling with that. And you know what he's going to say? He's not going to say, how dare you? He's going to say, yeah, I know. And I'm so blessed that you finally confessed that. Let me in there with you. Don't stumble. Don't be offended. Let's walk this thing out together, and you will understand it all soon. You see, John was going to die. That's the next message, the last message. He's going to die. He's going to give his life. He's, 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 in the New Testament, he's the first kingdom martyr. And he got a martyr's reward. That if Jesus had come in there and opened that prison cell, John would have had maybe 30 years of freedom. But no martyr's crown, no eternal reward. 
But Jesus' design for John, the Father's design for John, was to be the forerunner, to blaze upon the scene, and then to fade out and enter into his inheritance. But John thinks that the definition in his moment of doubt, he, it, it's just what happens to all of us when we're doubting, the kingdom gets really small, like a prison cell. That's where John is. So the guys go back, and it brings us to these last few verses. Here's God's grace for those who struggle. Maybe it's you, and if it is, please stop pretending like it's not. There, there's so much that, there's so much beauty and breakthrough that awaits the soul that gets honest with God. And so look at the grace for those who struggle. Now, let's just learn a little bit here. The strongest believers can wrestle with doubt. Verse 24 and 25. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Most of the time we're given a testimony about Jesus. Here's Jesus giving a testimony about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury, and live in luxury are in the king's courts. So, let's get back to the context. All that are present during while this is happening would know of John the baptizer's struggle with his doubts. They would, have, they would have known it. They would have been aware of what's going on, at least many would. And some of those people might have judged John as weak, are fickle because that's what that's what people do religious people when they see somebody go from the the power moment to the the pitiful moment they judge them there, there, there's no there's no fruit there's no glory in rejoicing when another person falls and so jesus is is preemptively defending john and 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 Maybe even in the crowd that day, some folks had already started gossiping about John. Yeah, John loses his crowds and he loses his faith. And, you know, you just know how that works. Y'all been around long enough. You know how people can be sometimes. And, and beautifully, Jesus takes up the defense of the forerunner. It's an awesome thing when Jesus defends you. He does, how many of you have learned that he does a much better job at defending you than you do? Sometimes we're too impatient to wait on it, though, aren't we? And so... Jesus intentionally chooses this moment to speak all of this affirmation of John in the hour of his trial. Jesus says, yeah, you guys picture John like a, a, a reed that just bends with the winds of circumstance. You guys picture John as a softy who, who was, you know, doing what he was doing for some kind of external glory. Jesus says, hey, the guys that are softies and they're dressed up all in their beautiful robes, he says, they, they're meant for the king's palaces. John lived out in the wilderness for me. And when the winds blew, John didn't bend, and that's why he's in prison in the first place. Isn't it ironic that, that, that the very potential to think John was one who just bent with the wind, the reason why he got thrown in jail is because he wouldn't bend. He wouldn't bend in the presence of the murderous, treacherous Herod. He stood his ground. He stood for righteousness. He stood for truth. And Jesus wants to make sure that everybody knows that that's the man that Jesus sees. Not the struggler in a moment of weakness, but the, what the primary characteristic of John is he was a powerhouse for the Lord. 
And so what are we learning here? That the strongest believers can wrestle with doubt. And so when you struggle, refuse to, 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 to listen and agree with the accuser who says, you're a terrible Christian. You're a terrible Christian. You're a fake. You're a phony. If you believed God, you wouldn't think like this. You wouldn't ever be sad. You wouldn't be blue. You wouldn't be depressed. You wouldn't be demotivated. You wouldn't want to uh, stay in bed all day. You'd never have a moment like that if you were really saved. And the accuser just comes in there. And, and Jesus is, is defending John from human potential for accusation. And he's, he's encoding it in the Bible, so you and I will read it 2,000 years later, and, and, and take heart that um, to doubt is not equal to be disqualified. I, I don't know if, man, I'm really feeling a little grace on this right now. I feel like the Lord really is doing some very specific, like, scalpel work on somebody's heart right now that um, strong believers maybe more than anybody, will be confronted with circumstances that are terribly frightening. Let me tell you why. It's not rocket science. He doesn't ever want you to ultimately rest in your own strength. He wants the strongest believer to know her weaknesses. He wants the strongest believer to know that there are things that he must recognize are meant to humble him so that he'll learn to more deeply rely on the Lord. It's not chastisement. It's not disqualification. It's not God being mean to us. It's the infinite, all-loving God knowing the dangers that you don't even know about yourself that are in your soul and God saying we have to put those things to death and we cannot do it by constantly reaffirming how strong they are. They need to know that they're weak too. And so sometimes we don't like that, man. We're just like, man, let me, I want the strength. I want the beauty. I want the, I want the easy way. I want the glory. And Lord, I want it all for you. And, and listen, we can mean that and be sincere with that. The Lord says, nah, if, if you're always strong, there'll come a time where you actually begin to think that you don't need me as much as you really do. And so it's actually mercy that he allows these things to overwhelm us. So verses 26 and 27. Let me give you this, especially to you that, um, well, let me just read it. Destiny and ministry do not prevent doubt. What then did you go out to see, Jesus asked? A prophet? Jesus says, I tell you, yes, more than a prophet. This is he, John is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Let's remember John's life. Raise your hand if an angel came to your parents to announce your forthcoming conception. I didn't have that on my resume. You didn't either, but John did. God said to Gabriel, hey, Gabriel, go down there to Zechariah. So I want you to meet him right in front of the veil in the temple, and I want you to let him know in his old age that he's going to be a daddy and that his daddy is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's right, the fullness of time is coming, and Zechariah's sons and is going to be the forerunner. Go tell him. None of us had that on our life. So before John was conceived, he had destiny attached to his existence. 
Then a few day, on, on the day of his circumcision, eight days after he was born, his father gets his voice back and he begins to prophesy over John's life. So he's eight days old and he's getting Holy Spirit prophecies on his life at eight days old. He's consecrated unto the Lord from the day of his birth with a Nazarite vow, drinking no wine, eating no grapes, not cutting his hair. And then, and then the Bible says he lived out his, probably from adolescence under the time of his ministry, out in the wilderness with the Lord. So think with me. John's whole life has been about consecration and ministry and prophetic destiny unto the Lord. And none of that prevented him from doubting. Ministry does not sanctify you. Ministry exposes all the parts about you that aren't sanctified. You know why? It's this little thing called people. Because when you minister, you are ministering to people. God doesn't need any help from me. God's not up there saying, man, if I could just get Jeff to help me out with this thing. God doesn't need us. He loves us. He wants us. He doesn't need us. People need us. And so we, 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 oh, I've got a calling. I've got a prophetic destiny. It's going to be awesome. And it is until you run into people. And then all of a sudden you're aware of what's wrong with them and what's wrong with you and what happens. Listen, you come to a place where all of what you've thought begins to get rearranged because we never think about it rightly at the beginning. We have to learn it. So John's prophetic destiny and his powerful ministry did not immunize him from doubting. Um, I'll tell you this, one of the one of the greatest things about working with a, a leadership team, back in the old days, the pastor was like, did everything. And pastors can't show weakness. Pastors never need to apologize. Pastors should never confess weakness in front of people because they need to have their confidence in him. Listen, that's the kind of stuff we need to think about Jesus, not about a pastor. A pastor is a sinner saved by grace. A leader is a sinner saved by grace. One of the greatest things of working with a team of leaders is that we can actually look each other in the eye. And I won't go into details, but I'm going to tell you, I've had moments with every single one of the other three pastors and plus some of our other leaders here where I've looked them in the eye, either they're crying, I'm crying, and we're, 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 saying, we're beating our chest saying, the sin, the struggles, the, we're not who we should be yet. And, and we have to get real about it sometimes. And we recognize that what God's doing in this mission base and what he's doing in this region cannot be approached casually. I'm going to tell you something. Listen to me. If any of the leaders in this mission base start believing it's time to take it easy, to casually approach what God's doing, I promise you what God will do. God will say, oh, you're the wrong person for this. Let me move you to a place that is perfect for status quo approaches. Because that's not what he's doing here. It's not what he's doing in our region. So ministry, if anything, and, and prophetic destiny, I hope you believe you have a destiny attached to your life. What I mean by that is that God had some purposes before he birthed you into this world. You've got assignment on your life. But that doesn't mean you won't struggle. It doesn't mean you won't doubt. It doesn't mean you won't wrestle like Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. And so we get down to the last verse. This is what I just love about the Lord. Jesus doesn't walk away when we doubt. This is where Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of woman, women, none is greater than John. It just blows my mind. 
in John's weakest, lowest, most pitiful, helpless moment, Jesus declares over his life, nobody ever born of women outpaces this guy. I'm going to be very careful with what Jesus said because I've spoken this wrongly before in the past. Jesus did not say that John was the greatest man ever born. It seems to imply that, but I'm just going to say what he said. He said there's nobody that excels him. Maybe he had a lot of equals in the estimation of God. But he's, he does say this. Nobody was ever greater than John. When did he say it? Not when John was baptizing hundreds. Not when John was boldly standing before Herod. Not when, when John was confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and calling them a pit of vipers. I oh, mean, I wish I would have been there that day. It would have been awesome. Jesus didn't say anything to John during those times. Jesus waited until John decreased. When John was in his decrease, Jesus says, let me tell everybody what I think about John. If you're in your season of doubt, if you feel like you're caught in a cell, a dungeon, the light's dim, the air is stale, you're not getting fed, you're not fulfilled, you're alone, you're isolated, feel like Jesus is out there running the world and he's not stopping by to see you, It's in those moments where I think if we can get alone and just stay there, you'll hear him say over you, I love you. I've never given up on you. I have not forgotten about you. I am not done with you. Your destiny is not finished yet. That brainwave and that pulse that you have should be signals to you that there's more to come from me for you. I am not finished with you. And your doubts, my child, do not intimidate me. I love you through your doubts, and I love you because you are still pressing in. Listen, John was pitiful, but he was still pressing in. He was still wanting the Lord. And that, when we still want him, we may not understand him, we may doubt what's going on, but man, if you can just burrow down into the true core of, of your spirit and in there, you're going to find that little baby still crying out, Abba, Abba, Father, Abba, little, little babies. There was, um, I'm going to close with this. I work, I, I work once a month downstairs in our children's department. I work with my daughter. She's, she's the boss and I'm the helper and um, we got done with a pretty energized and long Sunday morning down there not long ago, and there was a little girl. I'm not. I, I won't mention her family's name, but you probably know the her dad. And um, she was wailing. She was crying, and she was upset about something. And I'm walking down the hall, and. I don't remember, I think Nicole was holding her or something. She's just going after her. And her eyes just locked with mine for a second. And she just took her arms off Nicole's neck and just lunged for me. Like, and that never happens with me. Kids usually are like, Jeff's coming. She just, she just lunged for me, arms wide open. I didn't think about it. 
I didn't hesitate. It was irresistible that I just took her up. She just hugged me. I have no idea why. I have no idea why. Maybe God wanted to just show me how he sometimes feels about me when I'm like her to him. With my arms up, my cries loud, I don't have anywhere to go. I can't express what's going on. And when I reach up to God, he just says, come here, boy. That's the way he feels about us. He's a good, good father. It's more than a song. It is the bedrock of our belief. You're not always going to understand him. The 11th commandment is not, thou shalt figure me out. <laughs> You'll never figure him out. He's not a puzzle to be solved. He is a father to be known and enjoyed and loved. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, untie the many knots that are in our hearts. We're complicated, Lord. We don't, we don't want to be. We know that we are sometimes. Give us the freedom and the courage to be easier children, not trying to figure it out, not toiling to always get it right. And God, give us courage in our soul. If there's one in the room tonight, I just really sense this, guys. Father, for the ones that are in the room tonight that are really struggling with you, would you call them under the safety of confessing their doubts and welcoming you to shepherd them again? Blessed are all who will not stumble and be offended with you. So bless us tonight, Lord, as those who are tired of stumbling, we reach our arms up to you with our cries like that little girl did. And we know you're going to sweep us up. We trust in you and we wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen.